This is the Silver City Church Podcast. Our prayer is you are edified by this content and that it refines your life in Christ. Visit us at silvercityky.com. From there, you can connect with us on social media, view our location and service time, and download our mobile app to stay all the more connected with us. If this content has been beneficial to you, please share it and give this show a high rating so more may hear the gospel of Christ. May you see God's will be done and kingdom come in your life. Um, So as we come to the final verses of Titus this week and next week, we need to look back at the field that we've been plowing ahead in this, uh, this church planting endeavor. So we have been called by Paul to, uh, to have knowledge, the knowledge of the gospel, to have a unifying common faith, and to be joined to an eternal hope of reconciliation and restoration, all based in the God who never lies. This, this is kind of the nucleus of the Christian faith, reconciliation, the God of all truth, and having the objective truth of Scripture. We have seen Paul tell his protege Titus that the church needs good, solid leadership to be stable, and that that this leadership is not haphazard, it's not just anybody, but it's godly, qualified men, men only, who are emulating Christ. The leadership should be worth echoing. The leadership should be worth following. Paul has given us exhortation to be unified in faith, that false teaching must be far from the church, but when it does come up, and it will, there is to be rebuke of handling it in order to cause those who believe incorrect teaching or those who even teach it to repent. It's not just smash mouth, let's fight everybody and get them out. No, it's, it's towards repentance and restoration. We have been enlightened to see how the elder is the steward of God's house. God's house is the church, His people, universal, worldwide, throughout all time. Not just one location, not just Silver City Church or Baptist Church or Presbyterian, whatever. It's His church through all time. So this house, in a house, there are people, and under that roof there are rules. We have roles and rules. And we examine the various roles of godly men and women and masters and slaves, and we should delight should delight to want to live godly lives, that we are not in the dark on how to live. Why do we want to live godly lives? Because God has saved us for a purpose. We are godly because of a godly gospel. Amen? And last week, we saw what it meant to live outside the house, meaning how we are to live out in the world. We are to be kind and courteous, accommodating to civil authorities and all people, especially unbelievers, Because we were once lost in darkness like them, but the grace of God appeared in Christ and has called us into light. Thus, our lives, they should be giant light bulbs in the dark world that attract the moths of the night. And they land on it and, um, well, we'll just keep with the the fluttering insect. The, The moths get changed to beautiful butterflies that live during the day, right? In the light. So God calls, God, God's people are called to know the truth of Scripture, to live it out in godly, self-controlled ways and do something with it all, meaning good works, not because those good works save us, but because we are saved unto them. This is effective. This is profitable. This is excellent. Now this morning, I want us to think back 
about this word of profitable for one moment. Profitable. This is not merely a word for stockbrokers or bankers, people that do day trading and hoping that Dogecoin will go into the moon and it didn't, those type of people. Profitable means to yield or produce a gain. It means to produce a gain. It's good. There's a surplus. If we're thinking about church planting and using the imagery of a farm, and I will say I'm mixing many metaphors this morning in this sermon, but at the outset, every farmer profitable to feed his family and livestock and to sell the rest for income. Not only is his household fed, but by extension, others are fed as well from hard work and toil in feeding others. How many of you all have been fed at some point by the Collier household? Right? Only me, the scones? Nobody else has had scones? Okay. Jacob, thank you, Jacob, for admitting it. It was a guilt thing, wasn't it? What happens, though, for these farmers? What happens if the crop they produce or he produces for his own table and others has some diseased plants in it? What happens? There's going to be sickness. There's going to be disease. And some diseased plants can even cause death. A good farmer at the first sign of disease knows he must take action. And if that disease keeps coming back or advancing, the farmer knows He's going to have to start over in some ways and maybe even take those crops and put them in a different field. So we've already talked about some of the bad plants with our bad leadership and the false teachers back in Titus 1. But what happens when that false teaching won't leave, when it lingers, when it's ingrained? What happens when there is disease on the plant of the church? Well, Paul tells us in our text this morning what to do. It is most pertinent to grasp what Paul is going to lay before us and see it through the analogy that we've just talked about, the metaphor of the farmer feeding his family and others. The farmer produces for his table and for others so they're healthy, so they have sustenance. Imagine being on the other side of the table buying food from the farmer who doesn't care and you eat something that makes you sick. How many of y'all have ever had food poisoning? It's terrible. How many of y'all have had food poisoning from a restaurant and never gone back to that restaurant? I've done that, right? Imagine being on the other side of that table. It could hurt us even to the point of death. So would you open God's word this morning if you have it before you? Titus 3, Titus chapter 3. I do encourage you to bring the word of God with you physically. If you don't have a Bible, please let me know after service and I would be more than joyful to get you one. Titus chapter 3. I'm going to be reading everything in context Uh, so that we understand what's going on here and we don't just plop in at the middle of the end here and, and get confused. Hear the living word of God for you this morning. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were... ...stray... Slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. 
This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. For as a person, uh, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Thus says the living word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that is clear and authoritative, that pulls no punches in a culture that wants to sugarcoat everything. God, would you give me the wisdom on how to deliver this sermon uh, for your people? I pray that there would be hearts that are open and soft, that the implanted word would go onto seed, uh, onto soil and, and yield 30, 60, and 100 fold. God, we love you and we praise you for your word. Would you convict us of our sin? Would you draw us to repentance that we would be more like Christ? And we pray this in his name. Amen. All right, so this morning we're going to be focusing on verses 9 through 11. So I wanted to give that full context again for two reasons. Number one, the glorious gospel contained in the majority of this passage in, in Titus 3, 1 through 8 is just that. It is glorious to hear that, that run-on sentence that Paul has about the gospel. We should never tire of hearing that. And secondly, there is a direct compare and contrast, a juxtaposition that Paul is doing here. Uh, and if we, if we miss that, the context, we kind of get off in left field uh, with what's going on. So Paul has just told us why we are to live these godly lives at all times toward all people, right? Not just to our fellow brothers and sisters, but to all people. That our lives may be used as a tool of evangelism or a tool of discipleship, a tool of, of reflecting God, to have others see that there is a difference in that dark world. They're, they're in that dark world of rebellion, and we are to be showing them the warm, lighted house of God's church, given that Christ left His warm throne to come into a dark world to save sinners. Philippians 2. Amen. This saying is true. It is trustworthy because it is the big idea of the trustworthy word being taught by the Scriptures, by the elder in our Scriptures here. The trustworthy word, the Scriptures, point to this big, giant, bold truth of Christ dying for the ungodly, living a it's and calling them to do the same, Romans 5. But we know by good logic, if there is something that is true, then there must be something that is false. If there is something that is profitable, there must be something that is unprofitable. If there is a house, and there is, then that house must be sheltering us from something, right? Let me give you another analogy. You're getting a bunch this morning. Another analogy as we go through this text and thinking about it. Imagine, now this is one we can easily imagine this morning, okay? Imagine you're on a cruise ship. Caribbean, Mediterranean, doesn't matter. Alaskan, see me after service. Free food, 24-7, entertainment, fun, all these things. Not a pool if it's an Alaskan cruise, hot tubs, I guess. But you're on the ocean. You can see it. 
You can smell it. You can even taste that salt in the air. But you're not in it 100 miles out, are you? You're on the boat. And who would want to be in the ocean 100 miles out? I wouldn't. Now, what happens when you're cruising along and all of a sudden there's an explosion below deck in the lower quarters and all of that water that you stare out of on the top deck in amazement of starts being from out there inside. What do you do? Women and children first, right? And then if you've got a door, you can float on that while your girlfriend is on it, right? Titanic? No? Nobody? Okay. Never let go, Jack. Right. You, that's a problem. We don't want the water outside getting inside. That's, boats are supposed to work in this way. <clears throat> the water stays out there and they float on it. We don't want water inside because then we would have problems. The ship would sink. This is what Paul is positing for us this morning in our text. God's people are to live godly lives out in the world, making a difference, making an impact, because this is profitable for everyone, even unbelievers. Right? Can everybody get, we all tracking? But what happens when we have unprofitable works, when the world starts creeping into God's house, when what is outside comes inside, the water rushes in. What do we have? Sin is meant to be outside the camp, not inside the camp. More on that later. Titus 3.9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Here Paul's Tim uh, Paul tells Titus and Timothy, too. You can read 1 Timothy about this. To avoid something. He says, Avoid this. Don't. Don't do it. If we think back to the character of the false teachers in chapter 1 of, of Titus, many of the things to avoid are direct spawns of these false teachers and their character and what they've been kind of dropping along the path. Paul is telling Titus and us this. It's one thing to reprove and reform false teachers and those who maybe fall into some bad teaching. It's a whole Another cup of tea uh, when they do it in the name of wanting to drag you into the mud pit along with them and they won't come out. Here in verse 9, Paul gives us the antithesis, the opposite of profitable and excellent good works. Unprofitable and worthless. Well, that's not hard. We understand that. Paul didn't use a bunch of heady theological language that we're like, well, this means the opposite. He says, no, they're unprofitable and worthless. Pretty straightforward, huh? The same works the false teachers were doing and the same works that they dragged people into, all that stuff, no profit, worthless. The word that Paul uses here for avoid in the text is an interesting word. It's only used four times in Scripture. And it, it's a word that means to stand around. To stand around. What's that mean? Uh, one lexicon puts it nicely like this. I think this is exactly what Paul is trying to tell Titus and us. It means to be a bystander. To be a bystander. Think about this. Here's your other analogy. Are bystanders in the parade? Do bystander, bystanders, are they in the parade? No, we're getting ready to have one of those soon. Mount Sterling always has a nice Christmas parade. We always stand on the corner by Jacob and Helderman and all that stuff and watch it, and it's cold and all that. 
do we just walk up into the, hey, how you doing? There's the float. No, you stand on the outside. You stand on the perimeter. Bystanders don't go in. Just because you're not in the parade, just because you're not in the parade doesn't mean you don't understand the parade. Don't miss this. This is different. Just because you're not in the parade doesn't mean that you don't understand what's going on in front of you. Paul is encouraging us through Titus to, to be bystanders in foolish, unprofitable junk, meaning unprofitable works that manifest themselves in bad teaching and bad living, but as bystanders, thinking about this parade analogy, we are aware of them. We're aware of the floats in the parade, right? We're like standing on the street watching it, able to take the whole parade in actually, looking down and looking back, but we're not in it. We're aware of it. Avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law. The word Paul uses for foolish here, moros, is, is an adjective that, that modifies actually all of those things. It's not just foolish controversies. It's foolish controversies, foolish genealogies, foolish dissensions, foolish quarrels about the law. And, and I think that the, the translation foolish here is a little weak. It, it, it's quite literally stupid. Avoid stupid, worthless, idiotic, waste of time stuff like this. This are, there's a sense of urgency in Paul's voice to Titus, isn't there? It's not like 1 Corinthians or Romans, this long trip. It's, hey, no, you don't have time for that junk. Stop. Seriously. You've got other stuff to do. We don't have time for that junk, <laughs> right? We should not, but we're to be aware of what's going on. Avoid these things. Now, we do not know what these controversies are starting there. They, they could have been political they could have been theological. They could have been social. Because we still deal with all the same stuff just 2,000 years later. What we do know is that there was some similar stuff going on in Ephesus under the watch of another true child of common faith, Timothy. 1 Timothy uh, 6.4 says this, talking about a, like a false teacher or someone that's divisive like we're talking about this morning. He is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and Paul lists all kinds of stuff. I don't want any of that. Timothy, you don't want any of that. Titus, you definitely don't want any of that. See, all false teaching, whatever it is, is rooted in the same sinful worldliness because worldliness is based in what? The lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. It's just self-idolatry. There are many good people Many great people who are Christians that I would not call false teachers by any means, but they're misled and they actually have this unhealthy craving for controversy. They live for Facebook drama, right? They, they live for political drama. They worship Tucker Carlson or, God forbid, CNN, even worse, right? They, they always want to know what's going on so they can kind of stir the pot and feel like they've got their hand in something and, and, and they're, they're contributing to the conversation, right? They're in the parade. They're riding that float hard. They might not really be even riding the float if they're good people, good Christians who maybe are just misled. They're, they're kind of like the people that sign up late and they're like, we just want to walk our dogs in the parade. They put no effort into the float, right? 
There are also many bad people who live for this as well. I mean, the media is built on this, is it not? It's built on this unhealthy controversy. I mean, somebody cracks open a can of, of Coca-Cola in Russia the wrong way, and, oh gosh, we've got to invade, right? It's this, what? This senseless stuff, right? But one thing that is interesting, I think, is this. There, there are many theologians and pastors who are controversial just to be controversial or are always in the trenches fighting some controversy that doesn't amount to a hill of beans. They waste their energy and their time on it. When the people of God waste their time fighting for things that are stupid, Satan has got us right where he wants us. Romans 16.20 says this, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. As the church walks on the back of Satan, crushing his writhing spine with the gospel, in a last-ditch effort, he, he likes to play the ventriloquist. He throws his voice to and fro since he can no longer walk to and fro, Job 1. And many go chasing that voice. Oh, what was that? Oh, did you hear that? And oftentimes this chasing after this voice, a chasing after the wind, Ecclesiastes, is done by good, well-intentioned Christians who love the Lord, but they mistake the fake fire on the parade float for real fire and end up riding along. But hear me, I do not mean we should not work out our salvation with fear and trembling. We are told to do that. We must do that. But I mean running after controversies that are meant to be goose chases. Let me give you an example. Recently in scholarly circles, there has been a debate and controversy called the eternal subordination of the Son. And it's, it's this. Has Jesus always submitted Himself to the Father from all eternity, or was it just redemption? There were conferences, there were Twitter threads, there were books and then counter books, there were documentaries, there were more tweets... There were tweets about the books and tweets about the conferences. There were friendships lost, and there was a lot of energy spent on this. And do you know what? It's a foolish controversy, even though it sounds nice and holy. How many times, just a poll here to be a pollster, how many of you all have thought about that this week? Nobody. Nobody. I don't think about this. You, you probably don't either. And if you did, or if, if I did, it's something to, to think about. Yeah, hmm, that's, that's an interesting thing. Hmm. I'll look that up later. Why do, you need, why do we need to waste our time with that? Why do we need to waste our time and energy with that? It's foolish. But it looks holy and it sounds holy, doesn't it? It looks holy and it sounds holy. Listen, we should examine what we believe. We've talked about that at the beginning of Titus. And even thinking about the, per, the particular topic of that controversy is fine. Hmm, that's an interesting thought. I'll, I'll have to think about that. But look at how much time was wasted on that. Look at how much energy was wasted. For what? Obviously, it didn't penetrate the rows of any church because nobody even knows what I'm talking about. But there were, there were conferences on this. People paid thousands of dollars to go hear people bark at one another about stupid stuff like this. And this is what the church finds herself doing more often than not. The darkness does not care 
about any of that because the darkness knows exactly who Jesus Christ is because every time Jesus came up upon a demon, what did those demons say? We know who you are, the Holy One of God. Sometimes, sometimes we need to have the profession of those demons because at least they know that and shudder. James 1. The Christian must be a good steward of time and energy. We must avoid foolish controversies. We need to know about them, bystanders, but not in them. Another aspect of foolishness we are to avoid is foolish genealogies. Now this one may seem odd at first, but it really isn't. It's quite applicable. When we think back to the false teaching that was going on in Crete, one of those false teachings was Jewish myths. Right? Remember, this was something akin to taking the Greek mythology stuff, Hercules, Perseus, whatever, and then kind of anachronizing some Jewish stuff into it and kind of scrubbing it up like you're, what, vid-angel. They, they vid-angeled all the Greek mythology stuff and Abraham's Zeus or something like that, you know, whatever. I'll rip on vid-angel because it's, it's fine, but it's silly too at the same time, I think. Uh, that's what the Jewish myths were. Stupid genealogies. Avoid these things. Foolish genealogies would try and trace back families to these types of stories or to try to sway someone to, to let this guy over here be in power, to have some veracity or authority. Well, we don't do that today, do we? Especially not in the church. You know, my grandfather founded this church and my daddy was the pastor here, so that's why I am too. It's not usually like an Ancestry.com DNA swab in your cheek that you send off to find out that you're actually 1-100th African. I am, thank you. I'll, if there are reparations, I get some. It's not this, but it's this family tree of controversy. It's this social club family tree that's used to display the, the to-dos and the, the, the power grabs, Right? You see, getting in a tizzy about your family name is actually a perversion of what the good elder is supposed to embody and to concern himself with. A well-rounded family, and a united family, and a good family name. The stupid thing to avoid is the elitist mentality. Well, my family has gone to this church for a hundred years. And then, here's a list of names. Ethel and Everett and Bobby and all these people. And yeah, those, you get of our seats. Those are our seats right there. We've went here for 100 years. We've paid our time. We've done all this stuff. And actually, my grandpappy, he gave $50,000 to build that youth building over there. That's why his name's on the front of it. What, what, what's your family done? And listen, here, Skippy. We're going to keep singing the hymns because I have the influence here. You've been around a church like this. You know you have especially in the Bible Belt, especially here. And we must avoid, as Christians, falling into this trap and letting it become part of Silver City or just falling into that stuff. Right? We need to honor our lineage, absolutely. I was talking to my dad this week, uh, actually last week, I think. I don't know, it's been a really long two weeks with flu. Uh, what day is it? I have no idea. Sunday, where are we? I was talking to him um, because I was thinking about some various things and talking about Nova and and. Havila coming here soon, and we got to, to talking, and, and um, I've been miscalculating how long my family has been in this county. I've been saying like, oh yeah, I'm like a fourth generation. Actually, that what was it we were thinking about? Probably more like seven. Seven generations 
of a family in one location faithfully working away at things? And if I see my great-grandchildren, we may find that book and it might be eight. We might have ten generations in one place. That is great. We should all be doing that, honoring our, our heritage and our lineage. And I know some people's family trees are, are bad and you want to cut branches out. Okay, that's fine. But at least acknowledge that they used to be there and, and go about making your part of it better. But avoiding these foolish controversies of, of thinking that we just need to wear the badge of family name around. And you see this in small town political elections, right? Next county over, it's only the, this last name can only ever be sheriff, right? Doesn't matter if you've been in jail yourself. They'll scrub that record for you to get that. But we need to honor them, but we never honor our family lineage for leverage. We never honor our, our lineage for leverage because that's actually what Satan tries to tempt Jesus with. Look at the kingdoms of the world. You know who you are. Can't have it yet, but if you bow to me, I'll give them to you right now. We are also told to avoid foolish dissensions. This is related to controversies. Uh, the, the difference between controversies is that controversies are more tied to gossip, information, whereas dissensions are the outworking of that controversy into tension. This is a call to avoid fights. This is the opposite of a unifying common faith. This is when the family won't speak to that other family because of something that happened 15 years ago and they want to drag you into it as well. As soon as you come to the church, you got to pick a side. Right? It's, it's Romeo, Juliet, Coys. At an older age, we used to call this strife. We don't use that word anymore in our or modern parlance, strife. And you know what? The Lord actually hates, capital H-A-T-E-S, hates strife. Do you know the Lord actually hates things, church? Did you know that? He hates things. If He is love, and He is, 1 John 4, then to love something is to protect that love from being damaged. I love my wife. She's beautiful. But if somebody tries to hurt her, they're going to get hurt. I will protect her. Listen to Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to Him. Meaning it, it, it's repulsive. It makes Him want to throw up. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue. That sounds like some controversy. Did you hear what they're doing? Right? Hands that shed innocent blood a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness that breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. And some translations say this, and one who stirs strife or sows strife amidst brothers. Strife. Controversy working its way out with legs on it and making people fight and pick sides. What happens when this gets into the church? We're a family. Proverbs 17, 14. The beginning of strife is like letting out water. So quit, so quit before the quarrel breaks out. The dam breaks and everyone is washed away in a flood of sin. That's what that is. There should be calls for reconciliation. You often fight for 15 years 
about that one time that Ethel sat in your seat? Get over it. You're still fighting about somebody messing up something at the potluck. Something is, or it's, oh gosh, the, the Clemens family voted for the church to have orange carpet, but we wanted pink carpet. It's true, and you laugh because you know you've seen it. Call for reconciliation, but don't get in the middle of joining sides and being like, yeah, you know what, Actually, I kind of like pink too. It's better with the wall. It's more, yeah. No, 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 stop. We need to be out of that. But when you are not following the example of the idol elder, you become a fighter. You become a brawler. And this hurts everyone. It yields no profit. We are called to fight against sin and Satan and the world. But when we fight everything and everyone around us, everyone gets hurt. Lastly, avoid quarrels about the law. This is what the circumcision party and all of its flavors did everywhere that it cropped up. This is a fighting not about the law of God. Like, is it good? Like, should we use it? No, but the additions, the parameters around it or severe misunderstandings of those scriptures. And they become like the linchpin of that person's life. Right? Paul tells excuse me, his other protege, Timothy, to do a similar thing in 2 Timothy 2.14. Hear this. Remind them, your little church or your churches, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words. Not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins its hearers. Quarrels about words. Again, doesn't mean we don't strive to understand what we believe as Christians. Doesn't mean we don't study and ask questions. Of course we do. We know that. And it's sad that we live in an age where that has to be overqualified again and again and again. And you have to explain the general principle to someone because they, we, we think in all of these minutia contingencies now. Well, I, I think abortion is terrible. What about with rape or incest? Really? The 1%? negative 1%, you're going to talk and like make that the general equity law for everybody else? We do that with Scripture too, don't we? And people do this. It means we don't become fixated on a single little thing that may be biblical or maybe something added to the Bible as a commandment of men, and it sounds nice and holy, and then that fixation becomes the club that we beat everything with. So we are to be bystanders in these things. We watch the parade. We see it going on. We're aware of the floats. We're not on them. Why? So we follow Titus's example, being sound in faith, being able to strategically get people off those floats that are headed to hell with nice music going on in the background, I guess, and help them be sound in faith. So what happens... When you have an individual or individuals who have contor uh, con confronted that they're doing something like this, refuse to stop. What do we do? What do the scriptures say? What happens when they double down? Titus 3, 10 through 11. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. This is so far removed from the modern church that many lukewarm megachurch Christians read this and go, that's not real. That's part of the part that's cultural. That, Paul didn't mean that. That was just for them. That's not now. You mean, you mean pastors and church leaders are actually supposed to make sure certain people get kicked out of the church? Well, that's not loving. 
That's terrible. That's not Christian. They may make someone turn against Christ. Actually, that is loving. And that is Christian. And we pray it actually causes them to turn to Christ. This little section is what we could call a short treaty on church discipline. Now, some hear the word church discipline and think it's like scarlet letter stuff, right? Which is not at all what the Puritans did anyway. They, they think that it's the pastor with a, with a scowl on his face standing in front of the congregation each week and calling them out by their name in person for their sins. I had a, a great conversation with a dear brother this past week. He was like, can you just clarify what you mean by that? Of course I can. It's not that. <laughs> and a lot of people think it is. Because they get their church history and they get their idea about the Bible from silly documentaries or reading fictionalized history. Church discipline does deal with sin, and it deals with sin, especially those that are factitious, publicly factitious, and they do it, church discipline does it in a counter-strike way that's also public. Right? Why? Why? Because God's house is seen out in public. God's house is not a bomb shelter. It's a beautiful mansion. You can see it from the road. So when there's an attack from within, to stand by and let it happen means that you're giving approval to it. Especially as a pastor, if a church only cares that you show up on Sunday and doesn't care what you really believe as long as you're there, then that pastor is letting true sheep be devoured by wolves. Calvin was famous for saying the pastor, who is a shepherd of his flock, he has one voice for the sheep and another voice for the wolves. Jesus himself displayed this. He was gentle with those who were coming to terms with who he was. He was gracious and meek and generous, but to those who were exploitative and divisive and would make their followers twice the, the children of hell that they would be if they didn't even know what they were going through, he called them foolish broods of vipers, sons of Satan. Uh-oh. Jesus, oh, that's not very nice, Jesus. Can you put the lamb back on your shoulder and let everybody pet it? No, he was mean because sin and divisiveness is silly. It's foolish. It needs to be mean against. You need to combat it. Jesus even brings up church discipline in Matthew 18, which Paul no doubt has in mind either from reading an early gospel or from apostolic succession handing it down. Matthew 18, 15 through 17 says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. There's the one time. right? If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. See, people hear church discipline and they think, Jacob, I saw you do this this week. How dare you? You need to repent. Actually, that's like, a, that's like a holdover of Catholicism, of confession. But instead of it being in a box, it's in front of people, and it's a scare tactic. No, it, it's, it's all for the sake of gaining your brother. Hey, what, why did you say this on Facebook? That wasn't like you in private. Why'd you do that? I just had a bad week, man. Well, you might think about taking that off there because you got the wrong idea, right? Stuff like that. If he does not listen, take along one or two others with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is honoring the law. Deuteronomy talked about having a line of two or three witnesses. You can't just say, well, Rob, Rob did this. Says who? Me. Right? Two or three witnesses. Okay, there's the second time. 
If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. It's graciousness. Now, can you believe Jesus actually said this? A lot of people don't. Many modern Christians don't. I, I, I believe this. I know that Jesus said this. You know why? Because Jesus isn't tolerant. Jesus isn't tolerant. That's the 11th commandment for many churches. Just be tolerant. Be nice. Be kind. Well, they struggle with stuff. Yeah, they struggle with stuff. And when that stuff becomes their God, it's going to kill everybody in the room. This whole, well, you can't kick people out of the church because that's not Christ-like as a woke false idol. All that is is a repackaged tolerance bumper sticker made into a church shirt. I got that at the church uh, shop out front. No, Jesus was not tolerant. Yes, Jesus saved sinners. Yes, we all sin. No, this isn't a call to perfectionism. No, this isn't a single strike policy. What this is, is from Christ and Christ through Paul protecting the church, protecting his house. The, the farmer, to use that analogy again, knows some bugs are good for his crop. Some bugs are great. Bees are great. I can't believe I'm mentioning butterflies twice in one sermon. Butterflies are great. But caterpillars are not. Caterpillars are not. They will destroy your crop. But the little caterpillar, it, it needs a, a place too, and it needs to eat too. Yeah, it does over there on a leaf of grass. Let him go over there and munch on that and turn into a butterfly, and then you can come back over here. Three times, butterfly, right? He has his place. It needs to be over there. He needs a change, and then he can come over here. Don't want caterpillars. They'll eat all your Brussels sprouts. Ask me how I know. The church is called to be an example to the outside world of, hey, Big neon sign, you're messed up, we're all messed up, we're all disunified, we're all broken, and it's because of sin. Repent, be restored to right standing, unity with God and man, like the church is through Christ. Boy, the church fails at this terribly. Terribly. There are literal church signs that just say, come as you are but they don't give you any sort of exhortation to leave more like He is. Just come as you are. Come as you are. And it's usually, that means, we don't care if you wear pajama pants. No, you need to leave more like Christ. If not, you're simply coming to a glorified movie theater. When the church looks no different than the outside world, then of course, we make many twice the children of hell than they would have been if they did not come in. This is especially true of sin, Especially public and divisive sin just goes unnoticed or swept under the rug. The person that stirs the vision, Paul says, you aren't supposed to just punch them in the mouth and throw them out. Like, oh, bouncers, right? That's why I surround my, myself with j big giant men like Garrett and Rob, right? That's not what we do. No, Paul tells us to plead with them, pray for them, pray with them, try and steer them on the right path. Brother, what are you, this is silly. Don't do this. You know better. Jesus tells us to do the same thing. We go to him in private with some other people. We, we keep admonishing them. Please, why? Because this shows a common faith that loves. 
It shows desiring to have that common faith, that common unity and love. This isn't about control from a pulpit or a board. This isn't about a family that wants to see uh, you like being the Godfather, like, oh, you're in the family now. You gotta no, it's about a family in God's house wanting the family to stay together. Because if we destroy the family at the individual level, we can destroy the family at the church level, and that's the foundation of society, and everything will crumble. This is lovingly seeking to have people repent and follow Christ. The divisive people who are not repentant, who make controversies of everything, who can't stay in their lane, who refuse to submit to leadership because they think they are more credentialed, who start their own Bible study that teaches opposite what the church they attend teaches, who want to fight with the pastor or other Christians about everything. You know what they are? They're terrible examples who are bringing reproach upon the name of Christ. I said it there. There must be loving, private, pleading to repent, not just by the pastor. Actually, good church discipline happens organically by the members, and it never gets to that last part. It's always Christian brotherly phileo, brother-to-brother love. Why are you doing this? Don't do this. It's the family watching out for one another. But if unrepentant sin continues and festers, and the, the disease, the, the plant diseases, that leaf's got to go. It's got to go. Why? Because the church hates that person? No. To show them the church is called to be holy as Christ is holy. His bride is to be adorned in holiness and to shock them to their senses if the Lord would allow them. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported there in Corinth, there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that's not even tolerated by pagans. For a man has his father's wife Oh, by the way, this is next on the LGBTQ123 hashtag question mark, whatever spectrum is incest. That'll be next. Just wait. Are you arrogant? Are you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord, and my spirit is present, Paul speaking, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man, oh gosh, really, to Satan for the destruction of his flesh? See, you Christians, you're all just judgmental. You hate people. But hold on, finish, finish that line. Oh, there is more here. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So the spirit may be saved. You want to call yourself a Christian and then do things completely opposite and not just like, I struggle with sin. No, egregious, public, rank sin and you're proud of it? Then that's fine. Go follow your God, little caterpillar over there. Your God's Satan. How mean. Know how submissive to the will of God and trusting in His providence and His sovereignty that when someone who has devices is told, not to be a part of the church because of the refusal to repent and be unified and they're given over to Satan, as Paul talks about here, that the church trusts that God can use even that sin, their sin, to refine them and bring them to repentance. The prodigal son had to eat pig slop before he came to realize his sin. Many times people will become so hardened by their sin 
that it takes rock bottom to wake them up because unrepentant sin, sin that you love, makes you self-condemned. This is the opposite of self-control. It is doing what ought not to be done for shameful gain. Sinful self-condemnation is only concerned with doing things for the self, for power, for control, for satisfaction. Self-condemnation is the opposite of good works. God's people can't mingle with darkness. They are to expose it. Ephesians, we are to have nothing to do with it. Have nothing to do with a person like this does not mean you never talk to them. It doesn't mean, and I've experienced this, where you uh, see them in the aisle at Kroger or Walmart and you do the big eye thing and you turn around and walk the opposite direction. It's not what that means. No. No. You have them know what is not approved. You pray for them. You still speak to them. But we don't do this. Application. This is a heavy text. You didn't think that it would be this heavy with two verses. What are we to do with this? I praise God that there's, that there's no one here at Silver City that falls into this category. So why preach about it then? You're wasting your time. No, this is called preventative medicine. We need to have this in mind so if something crops up, we know what to do. That you know what to do, dear Christian. And you may have someone in your life that claims to be a Christian that's not a part of this church that you need to go and ask, like, hey, what's going on? Two points of application. Number one. Christians are called to keep watch over on their lives because they are reflections to the world of Christ. Of course, no Christian does this perfectly. Christians struggle with sin after the Lord calls them to salvation. But as Augustine so famously said, remaining sin is not reigning sin. Remaining sin is not reigning sin. When a Christian is desiring to be godly, becoming more like Christ, every day they hate their sin. They hate it. And they're actually thankful when someone out something that they've uh, an area that they've fallen short in a, a blind spot a flaw a deficiency because they want to show all that Christ is in them they actually enjoy that thank you and it may be abrasive at first but they they're thankful our lives individually our families and in our churches many times the only testament the world sees because it plugs its ears to the gospel remember show me a man's household and I'll show you Show you what he believes. Show me his character, I'll show you. You don't have to tell me anything about it. I have to to hear no word from him. Show me his character. Show me how he lives. And I'll tell you exactly what he believes. So dear Christian, are you living in such a way that while not perfect, you are displaying those excellent and profitable good works that highlight a changed heart to Christ for all to see? I pray you are. Secondly, We must watch out for one another because egregious sin inside the house of God will completely destroy families and completely destroy churches just like the false teachers were doing. Sin is to be outside the camp. When it comes inside the camp, it affects everyone. In Joshua 7, God told the Israelites that as they came into the land that He was giving them, they were to commit certain things unto the Lord as holy that they couldn't keep any of that stuff. So as they were going through about this one conquest, this guy named Achan desired to take this really nice cloak, a stole, probably a first stole, a silver first stole, a cloak, some silver and gold. Not a dump truck full, like a jacket in a pocket full of money. Right? That's not a big deal, right? A couple things. Who's going to notice that? Well, God. Right? Achan did the exact opposite of what God told him to do. And guess what happened? 
all of Israel suffered for his sin. They lost that battle. Joshua, the leader, couldn't figure it out why, so God told him why. It's because this one guy right here disobeyed and not only took stuff that he was told not to take, he took it and buried it in the camp. He planted it right in your midst. He didn't go bury it under a tree out in the wilderness somewhere where he can come back to it later on. He buried it right inside the camp under his tent. His sin caused great harm for everyone. So you know what Joshua did? Well, that's, that's all right. We all struggle. Just do better. We want you here. No. Achan, what have you done, my son? He went to him and Achan knew. Why did you do this? You know this is wrong. And God said that there would be consequences. He said if someone did something like this, that they would suffer and that person would be killed. And Achan confessed and bore the consequence. And he was stoned. By who? By Joshua? No, actually by the whole camp. By everyone else because his sin did not just affect Joshua. It didn't affect the pastor. It affected everyone. It was a public sin that damaged the public camp. God has put stipulations on what would, what would happen. You know, if God had said, if, if someone does this, find them, make them give it back and repent, then Achan actually would have been alive to take Ai the next battle. Church, we cannot bear Achan's inside God's house. We cannot have that. He has called the Achan's of the church to see Christ has taken the death that they deserve and that they should repent and follow him, treasuring him burying his treasure in their camp, not their sin. But if they will not, after, they, uh, after the church has gone to this person and pleaded with them, then they must be put outside the camp with prayer that they would repent. Why must the church recover this idea, I ask you? Because to let this type of unprofitable work fester will hurt everyone. Not just Silver City. I need you to hear me. It will damage the entire church at large. And this right here, the loss of church discipline, is what has cost the church so much credibility in modernity because she will not tell the wolves to go away and that this place is not a buffet for sheep. I close with this. Uh, Hayne Griffin, a New Testament commentator reflecting on this passage, it, he, he sums it up better than I could ever say. Divisions within the church result in believers who are confused, frustrated, angry, and hurt. They become ineffective in ministering to one another and to a lost world in desperate need of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the good works characteristic of genuine Christians. You want to make the church ineffective? You want to make the bride ineffective? Then turn her on herself. Divide the house. The world is watching us, church. Christian, the world is watching us. How will we respond? Will we look like another country club that's full of power grabbing and well-to-doism, biting at one another's throats, sitting on opposite sides of the pool because they pay their dues just like us, we got to deal with it? Or will we be the buttress and pillar of truth, showing the world what redemption and reconciliation of Christ in Christ actually looks like and what it does, which includes not tolerating divisive sin, just as no one would tolerate coming, someone coming into their own home and robbing them in broad daylight. Would it be that the Lord would convict us of sin, that we would repent daily, walk with Christ, walk in unity with one another, being aware of issues that are going on as bystanders, so that if we see someone we love on the ship that's sinking or running to jump on that float, 
we can steer them back to where they need to be. Amen? Amen. Grace and peace to you. Let's pray.